Welcome to the show, everybody. And if you could, real quick, just make sure to hit that subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube, or you can also follow on Spotify or wherever you're listening. And if you have a quick second, you can write me a review on Apple Podcasts. That would help me out quite a bit. Or follow me on social media to make sure that you don't miss any future episodes. Uh, now, my guest today, Joel Hoekstra. What a resume this guy has. Night Ranger, White Snake, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. He played with Cher. So the list of people he's jammed with or recorded a song with is even longer. And I'm always fascinated by people who can consistently find work in such a competitive field such as music and such high levels of work that he's getting. These aren't cover bands or local gigs. I mean, these are national headlining tours. So we'll get some of Joel's insights into this. And uh, he's also got some great stories on this episode. So here we go. Enjoy it. Please welcome Joel Hoekstra to the Chuck Shoot Podcast. How are you doing, Joel? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. So how's it? So you're in the Trans-Siberian Orchestra right now. Yeah. Uh, I roughly, I guess maybe a third of the way through the tour, something like that. Yeah. And how's it going? Because, you know, some people are still scared to go to shows. So does that affect the attendance at all or? Um, you know what, what it seems like, uh, we've entered a new era where people want to buy day of show because they, (laughs) they're sick of buying so far in advance and dealing with refunds and things like that. So the crowds have been, uh, really, really huge, uh, full, um, and you know, we're just, uh, amazed. It's great. So having a a terrific time. That's good. Oh, that's interesting to know. I think I'm kind of the same way though, because there have been those shows where, you buy it in advance and then it's like you got to deal with a refund and then but sometimes they so is there a limit to when you would cancel it because if it's people are buying day of then you don't want to cancel day of right you know i have no idea i don't know i don't know how any of it works uh i just play the song but (laughs) you know i think that i i i think that most bands have experienced like advanced sales have been down um and i know broadway has been that way as well and people buy (sighs) day of show and then the houses are full. So. I didn't think of that because yeah, New York is then they're pretty strict with the. Are they doing like half capacity or is that still a thing at some places? No, I think it's full capacity on Broadway, but I think uh, audiences are required to be masked and you know I don't know if it's vaccine tech, cards probably too, uh, right? Vaccine cards or negative test, I think is I think the policy. Do you guys have any of those rules at your shows or? So that's the way that works is it's not up to the artist. It's up to the The venue um, venues. Yeah. So we're just whatever the local laws are. We just are rolling with that. Okay. And then, I mean, you're still in Whitesnake too, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Are you guys going to have a new album out at some point? Um, so the big plans there are really starting uh, David's farewell tour. So that's um, right now we've got stuff lined up in 2022. We start in the UK with Foreigner, um, mm. a run with them, and then uh, touring Europe, ironically, with Europe for the most part, although there are some other dates. I think, you know, we've got uh, maybe a date with Steel Panther and a date with the Dead Daisies, and I think maybe one with Kiss. Wow, those all sound like great shows. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, looking forward to it for sure. And then there would be a U.S. tour at some point too then, right? One would assume. One would assume a farewell tour would uh, include the U.S., but nothing has been announced yet, so people just kind of kind of wait on that. Okay, wow. Well, your, your career is so amazing, but if we could just take a step back and 
kind of figure out how you got here. It's kind of amazing that you you started and you you were doing all these. Tell me about uh, or tell my audience about uh, you know all these guitar lessons that you were doing when and you're in your twenties and you're playing gigs. And I heard you say seventy students a week. So I was trying to do the math and I'm like, that's either ten students a day, seven days a week, or was it five days a week, fourteen students a day? Either way, that's a lot of students. <laughs> I think back then it was uh, six days a week and they were 30 minute lessons. So nothing that crazy. I mean, it was like, you know, a normal work work week for most people putting in uh, 35 hours. It just sounds like a lot, you know, I guess in terms of number of students a week. But um, yeah, so that was a lot of my my 20s was spent doing that and then uh, gigging around the Chicago area with the bands that I was in. And um, yeah, it's. You know, my story is like a long one. It's very hard to tell, like very briefly, like how it all happened. But you know, I I went went to New York to do a show called Love Janice. That was about Janice Joplin. Right. That was the move there, um, and that was really the first time where I wasn't um, teaching and gigging, where I just began to perform. And so that really um, that led to about a twenty year run of that of like only performing. So, oh, you uh, did that for twenty years. No, no, no. Love oh. Janice was like a two-year run, but oh. in terms of like transitioning from teaching. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, there to only performing. Yeah. Okay, that made more sense. Yeah, because so then it was this, but it was this guitarist from Survivor, Jim, Jim, uh, what is it, Jim Peterick? Jim Peterick. So Peterick. That, one of the things I did in the Chicago area was play in his house band for um, his world stage events and. So he would have a lot of his friends come out and sing their hits and maybe a new song of theirs or whatever. So I got to play with a lot of fun people um, with that, you know, Rick Emmett from Triumph and Don Barnes from 38 Special um, and Kip Winger. Uh, It's a real Alan Parsons, like a really long, cool list of people that would come out and be a part of those. And one person that was a part of it almost every year was Kelly Kagi from Night Ranger, the drummer. And so Mm -hmm. that's what kind of led... Uh, to me joining Night Ranger was knowing Kelly from there. And when there was an availability, they gave me an opportunity. My audition was basically a gig. And uh, so that's what led to Night Ranger. And um, really through doing pit gigs in New York, that led to doing the Broadway show Rock of Ages. And that kind of matched up nicely with Night Ranger because I could take off on Broadway when I needed to. And then really through a TV appearance on that and having friends in the band, that led to an audition for TSO. And so then I added that in and I kind of had all three things going on, which, which was nuts. Um, then basically transitioned over to Whitesnake and Rock of Ages eventually closed. And um, so it was Whitesnake and TSO. And then um, David took some time off uh, to have knee surgery one year and uh, ended up kind of um, I filled in for what was supposed to be a very short amount of time, uh, in Cher's band and then ended up doing a longer run with that than I ever thought to a few years. So it was kind of white snake and TSO and Cher there for uh, a few years as well. So um, Dang. It's, a, it's a long story. It's hard to, well, tell. yeah, but so how, I mean, you paid your dues though, to get to that first, um, Either, I don't know if you'd call, would you call Love Janice your first big break or Night Ranger? I mean, either one, they took a long time to get to both of those, right? Like how many yeah, I mean, years of... Even, even stuff before that, because, you know, joining Kathy Richardson's band in local gigs in Chicago, she was doing really well there. And Kathy is really who 
uh, got the role as Janis Joplin and oh. so kind of my my introduction to being able to do that as well. So, yeah, it, it, it's just like my, my career has just been a, a case of just kind of climbing step by step. You know, I just tell people like, in the end, I just I worked really hard at every step, and you could almost trace back every gig I've ever gotten to some moment of like, but you put in all that work for like no money, and like the, you know, and just it, so hmm. you just gotta kind of uh, do the things that other people wouldn't do and outwork everybody. And yeah, it was, explain that. Me. Give me an example. What what is a gig where you worked really hard and you got like no money for it? And and why did you did you just do it because you love the music so much or um, so like, you know, the rock of ages gig, I was subbing, uh, for my friend on pit gigs on Broadway. So I'd have to learn you know, 350 pages of music or whatever, you know, I mean, it would, you'd have to work. I, I would work six hours a day for weeks just to get a shot to like maybe once in a while go in. And I don't know what, you know, typical oh. pit gig is like 200 bucks or something like that when you go play it. So oh. it'd be like. If you, if you broke down the work and the money mm-hmm. made, you'd go, wow, dude, you're making like like seven cents an hour or something crazy, you know? Um, and the the Jim Peterick thing was like that too, because I was um, at a point, I had already gone to New York to do Love Janice and I was still flying in day of show to do those world stage gigs. So I would get down 35 songs by memory. So it would take weeks of like daily preparation while I was playing like eight shows a week with Love Janice every night and go in and play the one show with Jim, which not that Jim paid poorly by the show, but it was all that, you know, lead all that work you have to do the prep work. And those by the end too, I'm sure it was like, dude, I was making like (laughs) under a dollar an hour or something like that for the work you put in to go do it. But that, that led to night Ranger. So um, did you know that? Like, was that your plan and that you'd have this end goal of like joining bigger bands and you were doing steps or you just like, I really want to get this gig and I really want to play with a bigger audience? No, not at all. I think it was just, uh, you know, enjoying what I do and working hard at it and wanting to be better at it. And, um, you know, like the pit gig thing for me was a great excuse to um, <clears throat> to work on my sight reading again and mm. work on reading music, which you don't run across a lot in bands. You know, it's not like David and David Coverdale and Whitesnake's going to like throw sheet music down in front of you and go <laughs> mm-hmm. play this song. I mean, it's obviously the rock and roll school of by the ear, by ear. So, um, you know, it's been, things like that. And, um, you know, in the Jim Peter gig, I would say that was out of the opportunity to get to play with all those people and all those guys in the band back there. They're all my friends and great musicians. And, um, you know, I mean, the whole thing's been a labor of love. It's like there's, I've always just kind of looked at the at the music business as some things pay great and and other things have not. But it's it's uh, it's more about like whether or not you love doing what you do and um, and trying to be like really good at it by putting in a lot of work. Yeah. So with the Night Ranger, did you have to audition for that? And uh, do you know how many people you must have beat out some people? There must have been some other people considered that you that you beat out, right? Well, like I said, that was kind of like just a, a gig. So the the way that worked was that they had parted ways with Jeff Watson and Red Beach, ironically, was playing with them for the time being, but they knew he was going to be going back to Whitesnake. So they mm. needed somebody. And there it, it happened that one show that they had booked, Reb had to play with Winger. 
And so Night Ranger was either just going to cancel this show. And Kelly said, you know, I know this guy who plays with Jim Peter, okay. who he'll learn like 35 songs and on no rehearsal fly in and play the showdown. And like, so that's an example of how you build that reputation. So that really was my pathway in. And then I basically did that with Night Ranger. I think I had like, you know, like a week or two to get it together. Um, so I remember practicing like extremely hard mm-hmm. <laughs> for a week or two. And then uh, I say, you know, that first show with them, I mean, we had a very short sound check and it was like jumping out of a plane, not knowing if your parachute was going to work. And, and then when it opened, it was awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. Cause I would think I've heard so many stories like that where people get the gig and they have even less time than what you're saying. I've heard like you have like a day to learn all these songs or to, I think was it, um, who's the other guitarist that I had on from, uh, from night Ranger. And now I'm blanking on his name, Carrie, Carrie Kelly. I think he said yeah. he had like a day or something to, I thought it was him or somebody. And so it's like, I guess a week is, that doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> I had that with Foreigner. So when I filled in for Mick Jones and Foreigner, I had one day and that was that was my experience with that, that total panic. <laughs> and you did it, though. The, the total panic moment of like, we, you know, because we were on, on tour together. It was yeah. Night Ranger, Foreigner, Journey, and um, Mick was under the weather. And so basically I had a day to, to get it together. And uh, that was high stress, but, you know, great reward in the end. So what happens like when you're playing with Foreigner or Whitesnake or Cher and these big major stars and you, you screw up and you make a mistake? Do you now do you try to come up to them afterwards and apologize or do you just like not say anything and hope they don't notice? Like, how do you deal with that? Because there must be times where you hit the wrong note or screw up a little bit, right? Um, case by case basis, I guess, is my best answer for that. I don't know. Read the room. <laughs> <laughs> If it gets mentioned, then you can say, yeah, you know why that happened is this or, you know, sometimes the best response is, you know, I suck. That's my. (laughs) No. Have you had that where you've just sucked? You've never had those moments, have you? I I mean, I'm my own worst critic for sure. So um, usually most people are more satisfied with, you know, the job you do than I am. I'll be, I'll always be like, man, I could have done better. I could have played better. So really, that's interesting. Cause you're, I mean, you're, you've played with so many A-list uh, bands and musicians that, that you'd be critical of yourself. Like I thought you'd have a higher I, ego. <laughs> I think, no, I think all musicians are critical. That's how you get better because you want to improve. If you don't critique yourself, you yeah. usually don't improve very much so i mean most musicians i know are pretty critical of their own performance like a little harder on themselves have a harder time listening to themselves or watching video of themselves and things like that i think that's pretty common um but yeah i mean i think that there's there's always a compromise um in terms of how accurate you can play when you're on stage there's distractions there's you know, entertaining people. And certainly if you, if you put a guitar in somebody's hands and you're sitting down and you're, you're running a set, it's a little easier to play it perfectly Mm -hmm. when you're on stage and you're moving around and your in-ear mix might be, I don't know, different at times than you expected. Or, you know, I don't know, there's, there, there can be distractions. I always tell, um, people like you need to know music to the point where you can like carry on a conversation with somebody while you're playing it. That's like the level you should know it at or, or like deal with somebody like yelling in your ear and you can still play without messing up. That's kind of the way a gig can feel sometimes. That's an interesting take. I I guess I just never thought of that because 
you know, you see these uh, or you hear these stories or you see it where, where bands are just hammered and they're drunk or they're on drugs or whatever. And they're still playing. I guess probably the plane definitely suffers with those things. But there's so many, you know, uh, stories of that where the bands are just and it's like, how do they do or does the drugs help them? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I've never been one of those one of those guys, but um, I mean, some of it might come down to what band you're in, how difficult the material is to play. Yeah. So, I mean, Night Ranger had some pretty, you know, shredding solos from Jeff Watson that sure. I had to cover, and uh, you know, White Snake definitely. There's lots of guitar work in in White Snake and Trans Siberian Orchestra is a lot of. Um, you know, playing very, very accurately. And mm. while there's, you know, while you're on a lift 20 feet in the air, swaying around in fog and lasers and, you know, so. That's uh, a really good point. Yeah. I never thought of all the distractions because you're right. You're not just playing the guitar. You're having to deal with all these, the crowd, the lasers, the fog. I mean, that's a really good point. I never thought of that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's obviously a great thing and it's an amazing thing, but it also, it can, the entertainment you always there's always a little bit of a compromise on how accurate you play but nobody wants to see like 10 people sit up there on folding chairs playing their parts like totally sitting still staring at their instruments right mm-hmm. no that's that's exactly right so tell me about um uh, joel hoekstra's 13 i think it's interesting that you that you named they just went all in on 13 because you know you, there's all these hotels and things that don't have a 13th floor because it's unlucky and you said screw it i'm taking that as a name yeah um well I- so the way I viewed that when I was starting it, I, I had solo albums out under the name Joel Hoekstra, right? Mm-hmm. That were sound like guitar albums. They're instrumental and some of them were kind of like fusion-y and um, a little bit more progressive. And then I was like joining the bands. And everybody's like, you know, you should really put on a solo album that sounds more like the bands that you're in as I was getting these gigs. So, which I did want to do and I thought was a great idea. So the concept was to put out albums that sound like a band, um, but have the opportunity to do all the writing. So be the person that writes the lyrics and the vocal melodies and everything. So um, it's not really fair to everybody that's a part of the Joel Hoekstra's 13 CDs to call it a band because I really want it to be my thing. But also they don't sound like guitar albums. They sound like a band, like when you put them Mm -hmm. on. So a project name was was the thought, and I thought Joel Hoekstra's 13 you know, sort of indicates, Hey, this is a project. And, um, so that's the deal there. There's, there's a little bit of confusion there. Some people don't understand the difference between the Joel Hoekstra albums, the instrumental albums and the Joel Hoekstra's 13, but that's the deal. Well, now does your, um, solo Joel Hoekstra, does that have vocals though? Cause I think this one has vocals. That's a bit, gotta be a big difference, right? Yeah. Yeah, the yeah, basically, like I just explained, the the Joel Hoekstra albums are like the instrumental. The instrumental, stuff, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But yeah, you know, you you do sing. I like what you said. You said um, for the thirteen that you'd you'd rather have a better singer and have the album sound better than have you sing it and have it just be okay. That that's kind of like interesting take though, because you kind of have to like, uh, you know, it's like an ego check there. Um, well, yeah, I just want to put out a great album that's more about like the songs and, um, you know, Russell Allen, I mean, hard to do better than that. And Jeff Scott Soto sang half of the lead vocals on the first record too. So, um, two amazing singers, they definitely sing way better than I do. So that's a great, you know, in my view, that's a smart thing to do. Um, if it gives me the opportunity to still write everything and write the melodies, then, um, that's for me, it's more about like the songs and having the opportunity to be the person who's 
um, calling the shots on it. And, um, you know, I mean, those, those albums definitely still very much feel like my babies, you know, like I'm, I'm the one who get to, I guess, have the, the final say so in the mix and things like that. And so, yeah, no, they sound great. And, uh, I think what I really like about them is just how melodic the music is. Like it's, it sounds good. Like, I don't know how else to say that, but to me, it like sounds good. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a melody. It's, you can sing along to it and, uh, it's, they're catchy. They're catchy songs. Thanks. Well, I mean, I try and build chorus out. I'm kind of, uh, I guess that's like the popular sensibility in me is I mm-hmm. was, my songs usually start with a chorus more than some people start with a riff. Like, Hey, I've got this great oh. guitar. What do we do with it? And, and a lot of times with me, um, it starts more with like a chorus that I'll write. And I'm, that's a good chorus. I should try and build that out and then uh, build the, the riffs out and build a verse and a pre-chorus and things like that. So when you write a chorus, are you like, that's actually writing music or it's just like a, a melody in your head or? Yeah, a lot of times it'll be the guitar and me singing along, which mm. I have a tendency to do. So if I'm riffing, I usually am trying to sing a melody of what would be there. Um, and then sometimes, yeah, it'll be just me walking around and I'll sing a melody. I'll have a chorus in my head. Like that was the case with Hard to Say Goodbye off of the latest one, Running Games. I um, was in Tokyo and with Whitesnake and walking around and that chorus came to mind and I had it in my head and before I had the guitar, you know, and then went and picked up the guitar and figured out, okay, so that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> um, so sometimes it's that, yeah. That's cool, yeah, because you... You not only, I mean, you can sing a little bit and you play guitar, obviously, but you also have background in cello and piano, I think, right? Just as a kid. Yeah. I mean, I was like, my parents are classical musicians, so I think they had grand designs on maybe um, parenting, like a, a child virtuoso. So they had me on cello at a very young age and piano. Um, and I was just very, very young. And just did you wanted. like that though? Cause I, I, my parents made me take piano and I hated it. No, I hated it. I just, <laughs> okay. to, I, I just wanted to play baseball for sure. I was like, a, you know, a little sports kid and I was like, I don't want to do this. And then I saw ACDC and I was like, Whoa, that dude is the coolest dude in the world. Like Angus Young. And mm-hmm. um, so that's what made me want to get a guitar. And so I went to my parents and asked for a guitar. And I think they probably thought, sure, you're Segovia, classical guitar, right? Sure. And then they, next thing they knew, I had, you know, I was playing like Paranoid and stuff like that and rocking out. So did they try to like still try to sway you into the more classical or did they just finally accept it? Okay, he wants to play rock and. No, I kind of did that on my own as I got older and wanted to take classical. You know, there was a, that was a great era for that because a lot of the rock players were bringing in those elements, you know, Randy Rose mm-hmm. and of course Ingve Malmsteen and, you know, bringing a, sort of popularizing that those classical themes in the rock music and in the rock guitar. So um, I wanted to take classical lessons and I did, I think, my last year or two of high school and then actually a couple of years of college. Um, where I actually was playing more classical guitar than electric guitar. Um, so I definitely spent a lot of time doing that as well, which was, it, it's in the end, it's all, it's all good. I always tell people, keep an open mind and just work hard at it, whatever it is you're doing, and the life will kind of guide you where you're meant to be. And 
Um, you know, despite the fact I've been through playing with so many different types of bands and so many different types of styles and sessions and all that stuff, the stuff that's really clicked for me is the stuff that made me want to get into playing guitar in the first place, which is playing with like, you know, Whitesnake. And that's like, you know, amazing how life will sometimes just bring you where you're meant to be. Absolutely. Well, so you mentioned school. I think you went to, is it the, what are you, it's GIT, Guitar Institute Technology, something like that. Yeah, I did a couple years of college where I got my associate's degree and um, then I, I really had just wanted to go to GIT, but I was super young, you know, like mm. when I got out of high school, I was 17 and I think my parents were a little bit like, don't know about sending you off to Hollywood when you're 17 to go like live in an apartment. And um, But by 19, I guess it was deemed acceptable. Mm. So. so do you have to apply to get into that? Like you have to send them audition tape or anything or how's that work? Yeah, I think GIT is, you know, they're pretty, at least back in the that day, they were accepting of most levels as long as you knew how to play guitar. I think they weren't looking for people to like have to learn how to play a G chord, you know, they wanted people that could play guitar a bit. So yeah, there there was some application process, but I think I was qualified by that point for sure. I think, I, I can't remember who it was. It might've been Sam Bam Colton um, who was saying, I, th- I thought he went there, but he was, somebody was saying that they felt like the the best part of that was was networking and meeting people. Do you agree? Was it was that the best uh, experience for you there? Was it being able to meet other guitar players and network, or do you feel like you learned a lot from the classes? Um, well, it's a combination of, of both of those things, and I would say also just really good for a kid who grew up in suburban Chicago. Back then, we didn't have the internet to be checking out guitarists around the world. Mm. Um, to have this moment of all of a sudden the first day of school sitting in a room with 500 guitar players going like, wow, you know, there's a lot of people that want to do this and, and just kind of get, getting a read on, on where you stood. And like, you know, that's, uh, that's easier to do these days. You can go on YouTube yeah. and go, wow, you know, this guy's playing like this. Let me see if I can get out to that. Um, so it was all good for me. I played an awful lot of guitar. I would say that life experience would be the biggest thing. Just mm-hmm. getting out of um, a small town and going to Hollywood and, and living there for a couple of years was a great experience. Did you get to do gigs when you were in Hollywood? Did you get to play any sort of like at the whiskey or uh, any of these like uh, epic clubs? You know, not, not really. I mean, I was like, I practiced really hard and was recording a lot. Uh, during my year at GIT. And then I practiced really hard and recorded a lot and worked at a studio out there uh, called Cherokee Studios, which is world famous. Mm. So like, um, five studios. And that was fantastic for a life experience too. Just watching all these major artists come in and cut albums over that, that process. And also watching people who are unknown at the time and seeing them a year later be like major superstars on MTV. Really? Like, what's an example of a band that, that you came in that you never heard of and then it blew up? Um, like, Rage Against the Machine was, like, demoing, like, their first record there. And I remember, you know, Tom Morello hanging out playing the video game in the lobby every night and and talking wow. with people like that. And then, like, a couple of years later, you're like, wow, that guy's, like, a superstar now. Um, That's uh, crazy. But all kinds of people. There was... Um, in that period, Tori Amos came in and did like a showcase and she ended up really blowing up, uh, 311 where hmm. they were total, they, I, they, I remember they pulled up in their vehicle from Nebraska, like, and parked in the alley and got like a ticket. And it was like, that. it was like, <laughs> literally they arrived in like LA. Like in, wow. In 
So yeah, there was a lot of um, a lot of fun stuff like that, and then also you know just really big artists that were in there during that time, and um, that was like right around the time when uh, the the gangster rap thing was blowing up, and you know Ice T and Ice Cube coming in there and, and doing stuff, and uh, Boys to Men was really big, and they were in there at the time, and um, Madonna and this. Um, I mean, they're, they're, they're a really long list of people that were in and out of there. That's cool. And that must be, like you said, that's a huge learning experience to watch from those guys what to do. Or maybe, did you see anything like of mistakes, like what not to do? Uh, Rick, Rick James was in there, uh, when I was, uh, when I worked there and, and, uh, that was, um, that was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So was this during the cocaine years or? Oh, yeah. Right around the era where he and his wife, I think, you know, had that uh, where they burned the prostitute or whatever. I I mean, uh, that was like crazy, crazy times. So was he was was he yelling at people and stuff or is just it was just obvious he was coked up? Like, Like every single phrase that ever came out of his mouth was like screaming. It could be positive screaming, but it could also be negative screaming. <laughs> oh, wow. It doesn't do it justice, you know? Okay. It's a lot of fun to, to see. And, and I was, you know, your role when you work at a studio is just to basically not speak. So, you know, you're just kind of hanging out and you're just bearing witness to it all. But yeah, there, there was a lot of great memories. There's a lot of um, famous records have been cut there all the way from that early Jackson five stuff to all the Rod Stewart stuff. And there were all these legendary stories that um, circulated throughout the Cherokee faculty, the, the, you know, Mm -hmm. so does that, when you see like Rick James and he's coked out of his mind, is that as a, as a young kid, that's gotta be impressionable. Do you go, Okay, remind me to never do cocaine because you you seem like you never got mixed up in the drugs and stuff. Am I right? Um, I just basically took it all at face value. I mean, I was really young, 19, 20 years old. Yeah. I was just trying to get through my work day there and uh, pray that I could not get fired and things like that. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I was super green, dude. I mean, I was not ready for at at. 19, 20 years old, I didn't really understand. I think I had like a lot of technical ability on guitar at that point, but I didn't really understand what it was to be like a pro and be out gigging and working and touring and what it was going to take to do all those things. So Hmm. um, I'm glad I went back to Chicago um, in a way because that gave me the opportunity to grow and do that. I guess in uh, in an environment that where I could be with my guitar more. The teaching thing, I did really well with that because it allowed me to play my guitar Mm. five, six hours a day as opposed to having a different job where it's like you get home and you're like, yeah, maybe I'll put in like an hour on my guitar or something. So No, that makes sense. That's really good. So Whitesnake, Night Ranger, Cher, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, so many high-profile gigs. Is there anyone that you were considered for or auditioned for that you didn't get? Uh, nothing that I've auditioned for. I mean, there's, there's been, you know, just like a lot of the guitar players in the scene, there's been a couple bands along the way where they've, you know, inquired or talked, but you know, I don't want to name names or anything like that, but there's been, there's been a couple times like that, that would probably surprise people. <laughs> like, Damn it. Those wow. are the ones I want. Okay. I, I'll respect that. 
Well, tell me some stories though. Cause like I look at your website and, uh, I'm looking at the, you know, musicians played with, and this list is like huge and I'm, and I'm trying to figure out some of these, like, I don't know when you played with them. So you'll have to tell me the stories like Sammy Hagar. When did you, did you play on an album or was it live? No, that was just recently. And like, so yeah, I mean, you know, my bio is like, I try to list the people that were, who I played with the most up at the top. And then there's mm. all these moments where you, you know, I just did a, a, a gig in Texas where I got to go up and play the finale with uh, Vince Neil and, and Sammy. And so, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I like to document some of that stuff because it's, for me, it's like, yeah, I didn't really play with Sammy Hagar. I mean, I was up and like jammed a song with Sammy Hagar, but that to counts. me, that's important because, the, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what I look at it, dude. Is I'm like, yeah, yeah, it it doesn't belong on like a serious bio. Like I would never say put that at the top of my list and say played with Sammy Hagar because that would feel a bit disingenuous. But um, still, I feel like like you know all the hard work you do in life leads you to those situations, and you're like, hey, I got to hop up and jam with Sammy Hagar on a song. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I definitely count that. I would. I'm definitely never. Get, that's never going to happen for me. So I, I totally count that. What about uh, Brett Michaels? Was that the same thing? enthusiasm for all those people you know that's that's the bottom line and like so yeah for me that's like you know that's amazing like the 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 13 year old me would be like of course you have to put that on your website totally yeah so brett michaels it was a similar thing there would you just jam with him or yeah brett was just like a, a a song so that was um that was a I was playing with D Snyder solo band. And so D Snyder played a gig with Tom Kiefer and with Brett Michaels. And then at the end we all got up and did a song together. So same same type of scenario there. Brett's he's such a nice guy though. He's um Whitesnake has done some shows. Brett um opened for us at some uh, gig in Canada, I forget where, and and um he stood side of stage for like half our set and was fist bumping me. And I was like, this, this guy's just so nice. So cool. You know, wow. um, just, yeah, I, I had a, anyway, my experience with him, I was very positive. I just, I was a really nice guy. That's really cool. What about Sebastian Bach? Was that a similar thing? Just the jam session? Sebastian was, so we were in the movie rock of ages together right. Cameo scene. So we, I shared a trailer with Sebastian and Nuno and Kevin Cronin, basically. Um, and Debbie Gibson had her own trailer, but we kind of, they, we were the pack of people in that cameo. So we hung out for a few days in Miami. And then one of the things we did was do a little um, like impromptu acoustic concert for the actors and catering, you know? And mm. so that's my, I've technically jammed with Sebastian Bach's story. You know, it's like there's not. Yeah, I mean, most of the people on the list are like that, you know, like, you know, Ted Nugent, I'm just on like a track on, you know, we covered um, Coming of Age uh, on a Night Ranger album and segued into Stranglehold in the middle, but... Oh, fun. But I'm the way I look at it is, I, yes, but I'm on a song with Ted Nugent playing guitar and like, and he mm-hmm. played through my I think was so cool. He recorded his his part through my amp. So, um, yeah, there's lots of little moments like that where I don't necessarily have a tight affiliation with all these people, but um, I'm still proud of the moment. You get the pick. Yeah, no, I think it's amazing. And then, yeah, the last one I was going to ask you about was the Hugh Jackman, because that's got to be one of the musicals, right, that you worked on? or Yeah, so that was uh, The Boy From Oz. I was subbing in the pit, and uh, there was a a segment of the show where you'd start the second act on stage with him um, and be like up 
a smaller band, like a five-piece band, and then he would stop the show and he would always do something improv with the audience. He would get a mic out to somebody in the audience and they would put a spot on them. Um, and one thing about him, he was amazing. He, I was, it was my first day on the show and he came up to me and knew my name, uh, said, Joel, welcome. You know, it's great to have you here. And he's just such a professional. He knows everybody's name on the entire wow. set. And I was just some guy subbing on guitar. He didn't need to know my name and he knew my name and welcomed me and said, welcome here. And then when he did this improv bit, he wanted this person to sing something and, said, you know, what do you want to sing? And then they said, Bon Jovi. And so he looked back at me and I started Dead or Alive, right? And it was my first day doing this gig. And so anyway, this person sang a little bit of Dead or Alive. And then uh, there was this moment where Hugh said, you know, I just want to let everybody know at the end of the bit, he said that this is Joel's first day with us. And he was the guy to come up with the Bon Jovi song. And so he said, I think that deserves a round of applause. And, you know, <laughs> like broke out in applause and so i mean what what a what a pro and what a top guy you know it was just a, a, like a really cool experience this is before i was in any of the bands or anything yeah. so wow that's amazing i hear so many stories like that way more stories like that of these big stars that are just so kind and genuine than stories like the rick james where they're screaming at everybody i had a lot of you know great moments like that with rock of ages because the People do, they come to those Broadway shows kind of on like little PR tours in a way because they did, they do the photo op at intermission and mm. then it goes out. And um, so there was a very long list of very like big name celebrities that came to that show. And of course, we did things like played on the Tonys. And um, that was a one of, one of my very surreal moments. I remember we were, because uh, um, our bit was, we were, well, it was at Radio City Music Hall, right? So I had to go. I had to start it with a solo and everybody in the cast came up on an elevator behind me, right? So I was alone on stage or like waiting on the side of the stage by myself and Will Ferrell stands like right here and Dolly Parton stands right here and they're like talking to each other and I've got my guitar like warming up and I'm just thinking, it's like the coolest moment in the world. Like That is awesome. Well, like I wanted a picture of that so desperately. I'm like, I just didn't want to say anything to any either one of them, but I was like, I'm listening to Will Ferrell and Dolly Parton have this like awesome conversation. I was like, this is so surreal. It was really neat for just you know some guitar player from suburban Chicago to have those moments. I mean, I think that's pretty. Cool. It's crazy to think of. Yeah, you started like just this climb, and it just kept going and kept going, and you you built a reputation for yourself, and it just kept leading to all these opportunities. Yeah, there's there's lots of um, fun stories. I definitely feel blessed to have had the opportunities I've had. I mean, there's 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 a lot of great players out there. I think in the end, it's finding the right balance between uh, working really hard at your playing and then working your best with getting along with people and um, not overdoing the networking thing, but doing the networking thing. You know, okay. You can, there's a point where you can overdo that stuff too. I think you know. Oh, because so, is it like if you're asking people for stuff or, or how do you do, overdo it? Yeah, because I think well, on the scene, I think people think of you if you're on the scene rather than always saying, hey, dude, 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 think, you know. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. I, I think, you know, it can be overdone, too. So finding the balance there somehow. and um, And then I think, you know, just 
having respect for the situations that you're in. A lot of times people lose, you can get inside certain things, you get on tour and you lose perspective, you know, and um, just, you know, for me, it's just always important to remember, like, you know, the big picture, how glad I am to be in the, uh, you know, Trans-Siberian Orchestra and how glad I am to be a part of White Snake right now. I um, mean, you know, it's something like periodically I just still tell David, you know, just because it's like, you know, people always tell each other that when you've played like the biggest gig of your, you know, you get done with the biggest gig and dude, I'm, thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. I just once in a while, I like to remind David like, hey, by the way, dude, just want to let you know, I'm like so happy to be in this band and like so glad to be here, you know. So um, I think things like that are important just to, like, you know, remind yourself, keep perspective, but also just to like, let others know that you appreciate it and you appreciate the opportunities and, um, you know, not get cocky. Cause I mean, dude, there's so many great guitar players out there in the world. You know, I mean, it's not like, you know, everybody needs to remember they're, mm -hmm. they're replaceable, you know, there's Absolutely. no, yeah. no, like I'm irreplaceable swirling around in my head ever. You know? No, it's, it's competitive. Is now all these great gigs that you've had, is there any that you haven't had that you want, like someone that you'd want to jam with that you, even if it's just for one song? You know, I tried to do some of that stuff during COVID with some of these quarantine jams because they weren't necessarily for money and they were just low key and everybody was kind of doing that remote stuff. So I, I checked some names off the list, you know, doing the Abracadabra video with Arnell Pineda. Arnell's somebody I've been friends with since 2008 when Night Ranger toured with Journey and just always admired his singing and he... And, and, you know, he's, he's such a positive guy. I love the people with the positive personalities like that, you know. Um, and Billy Sheehan. I'd never uh, worked with Billy Sheehan at all. So having him in that video gave me an opportunity to at least say, like, hey, I've done something with Billy Sheehan now. Uh, a couple of videos of Mike Portnoy uh, in that time. Mike and I, even though we've both been in, like, 10,000 pans, had never... <laughs> anything together so um you know just people that i where i admire their talent and their playing and and a lot of times the personality um you know i, I did the echo bats video with tony harnell he's right. somebody i've never done anything with and um so uh nico mcbrain on jen majora's um you know so that all that was done during covid so um but in general, no. I my my whole thing is more of that philosophy of like always just work hard and let life guide you to where you're supposed to be because uh, some of the stuff you'll never see coming. And I, and I it's I say it in all my interviews, but I was not the 11 year old kid playing the Black Sabbath and ACDC riffs, going like someday I'm going to be on Broadway, you know. But the <laughs> really changed my life and um and the same goes for the share gig like i wasn't sitting there going someday i'm gonna play with share but like you know both of those turned out to be like these huge blessings in my life and opportunities so um sometimes you got to just like work hard at whatever avenues are available to you and see where it all takes you that's great advice i love it um tell me about the you have a project with michael sweet that's it's not out yet right yeah, it's not out yet. So Michael Sweet and Nathan James and uh, my bandmate, my White Snake bandmate, Tommy Aldridge on drums and Marco Mendoza on bass. So Wow. What can you tell? Is there a name for the project or a song title or anything? Is it all secret? No, nothing's been announced. I mean, it's all got to come from Frontiers, you know. Oh, but, okay. Um, but yeah, looking forward to it, you know. Uh, it's all mixed and, and mastered and 
Um, I don't know the release date or anything for you. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. But um, yeah, I know. I think we're looking to do some promo for that um, uh, and, and and get it out there as soon as possible. But I don't have a release date. Sorry. Okay. Anything else that you're working on that you want to promote here? Um, man, I mean, you, you did your homework and you covered it. I mean, that's pretty much it. I'm okay. like just trying to get through the Grand Siberian Orchestra tour. Very much looking forward to the White Snake Farewell tour. Um, I mean, I think that's going to be magical to have an opportunity to, um, be a part of the, the band, you know, David's last big crowd and, um, yeah, that's a, that's a kind of pretty cool opportunity for any guitarist i feel like so um you know looking forward to that looking forward to that project coming out and doing some writing for another joel hooksher's 13 album and just try to stay busy on a daily basis and and keep working at what it is that i do and and hope for the best dude yeah that sounds amazing yeah white snake i hope you guys do a u.s show now were you there you must have been there when they had cuz the, we have a band in Arizona called the Black Moods and they they opened for White Snake on a on a oh, short yeah. tour. Do you remember them? Oh, of course, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. They were great yeah. tour. Great guys, great band. Yeah, really fun. So maybe they maybe they can they can hop on for a, the Phoenix show. That'd be cool. But um all right, well thanks so much for doing this. I like to end each episode with a, a is there a charity or nonprofit that you want to promote here that's something that's near and dear to your heart? Gosh, you're gonna totally call me out here. <laughs> no, I mean, there's so many, but is this just something that you worked with in the past? Or I mean, I always just put something. You know, if after they've bought in the Joel Hoaxes 13 anthology, they can throw a few bucks to some charity or something. Um, Salvation Army. That's my. Okay. That's my little donation. You know, yeah. in a city where I live, um, anything that I you know is not fitting into my life anymore goes there. So okay. that's my answer for you that's the one i give to okay well thank you so much for doing this i know you're a busy guy so i'll let you get back to it thanks for uh, all the entertainment over the years too my pleasure thank you so all much right. for taking out. yeah enjoy the warm weather there in phoenix i man. will yes <laughs> are you guys like 90 today or something probably <laughs> yeah awesome, all right dude. right on we'll See you hope later. to make it soon hopefully we can connect in person we'll yeah them, you know that sounds fun I, i'm in a down for that all right right on brother all right see you later Thanks a lot, man. Bye-bye. Joel Hoekstra, guitarist for Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Whitesnake, and Joel Hoekstra's 13. Uh, I'm curious if that Whitesnake farewell tour sticks, uh, because we know some of these farewell tours end up never-ending, like Kiss or the band reunites, like with Motley Crue. So um, I don't know if I want to chance it, though. So I think either way, I'd love to see Whitesnake live. I've never seen them, so that would be fun. Make sure to follow Joel and all his bands on social media, and you can keep up with news and show announcements that way. Uh, if you enjoyed this interview, check out some of the other interviews I've done. Many members of 80s rock bands, as well as other music ones, movies and TV people. I have sports interviews, all sorts of great stuff. So if you subscribe to the show or follow me on social media, you'll keep up with future episodes. And I think YouTube is really where it's going to be at for me. If you have to pick one way to follow me, I think subscribe to the YouTube channel because There's going to be some exciting stuff coming on there. Uh, I'm going to be making some upgrades, and I think YouTube is going to be the future for me. Uh, I'm really going to go all in on that. So thank you for your support. I appreciate you all. Have a great rest of your day, and remember to shoot for the moon.